me ask you a simple question. Do you worry about anything? Do you worry about anything? If you worry about anything, Paul and Christ both say that every time you do, you're sinning against God. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Tom is continuing our current series titled, Six Steps to Spiritual Stability. He has part three for you today. Scripture says an attitude of thanksgiving should reside in you throughout the entire year, not just in November. But what if something unexpected happens? Maybe you lose your job, a daughter becomes seriously ill, or an aging parent declines in health. Do you find yourself consumed by anxiety in situations like that? Has worry become a regular pattern of your life? Well, today, Tom will show you how to overcome anxiety by having faith and confidence in God. You'll learn how to develop the kind of confidence that will allow you to come to Him with your requests and deeply thank Him regardless of what the outcome might be. Well, Tom, we can have confidence knowing that God cares about our requests, even the small ones, right? You know, Bill, that's right. Because I think often when we come to God in prayer, we forget that we're coming, as the Lord taught us, to our Father, the Father who adopted us, who not only commands us to come, but desires us to come and delights when we come to Him with the needs of our hearts and lives. And so He cares. I love that wonderful verse in 1 Peter 5 where Peter says, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. We can cast our cares on him knowing that if it's a concern to us, it's a care to him. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible now and let's join Tom Pennington with today's message on The Word Unleashed. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. You know, I've been reading recently a number of articles about the growth of a particular industry in our country. I've been amazed by the fact that what began when I was a young person, that little mesmerizing ball bouncing back and forth across a monitor called Pong, has grown into a multi-billion dollar a year industry. As people rush to the computer stores to buy the latest edition of some computer game, and it hasn't stopped there. It's now become a frenzy, a feeding frenzy, I understand, on the Internet. People gaming in various ways with different kinds of uh, games on the Internet itself. And if that isn't interesting enough, what's really bizarre, to be honest with you, is I read recently that there is a man in New York who started uh, some kind of a business, and I don't understand all I'm about to tell you, but started some kind of a business to allow video fans online. So now, if you don't want to play the game, you can watch others play the game on the internet. As I thought about the computer gaming industry and sort of uh, felt my, myself raising an eyebrow about it, just sort of the uh, unusual nature of the growth of such an industry, I realized that really it's not a new thing. In fact, there's a sense in which computer games are ancient as old as mankind itself. It's just in the past people played them in their minds. As I thought about it, really worry 
is nothing more than a sophisticated computer game of the mind. I mean, think about the similarities between worry and computer games. They both act in an imaginary world. They both contemplate dangers that are not real and probably will never happen. They're both costly in time and in energy and in many cases money as well. They can be destructive to productivity. In fact, I read an article this week about the fact that it's costing employers millions of dollars as employees play these games during work hours. And they can also both worry and computer games be costly in relationships. And in the end, both accomplish absolutely nothing. As one person said, worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. The English word for worry comes from the old German word, worgen. Interestingly enough, that word means to choke or to strangle. You see, worry is essentially nothing more than mental strangulation with whatever is the object of your worry. It's not surprising that worry has, I think, only intensified in the days in which we live because our culture actually breeds worry. And if you need proof of that, just watch the nightly news. It's not news anymore. It's all the fantastic things that are going on that could give people cause for worry. You don't even have to watch the news. Just watch the advertising for the news. The hook is always something to make you watch because you need to be worried about it. You know, you've heard the teasers. Five children die from drinking area tap water. Are your children at risk? Watch the news at 11. You know, a thousand years ago, all people had to worry about was what was happening in their little lives and their little village. But then came the printing press and the telegraph and the telephone and then radio and television and then satellites and internet. And today, we live in literally a global village and we have plenty to worry about. Not just our problems, but problems all the way around the world. The civil war in Sudan, the value of the yen, the problems of our culture from crime to drugs to the decline of public education. And that's all before you add the regular pressures of life that each of us have to deal with. The issue of putting food on the table, of paying the mortgage, of keeping the cars running. And then there are the people problems with bosses and fellow workers and family and children and parents, neighbors. How can a Christian deal with this onslaught of anxiety and worry that's a part of our culture and actually cultivate a thankful heart in the middle of that? Well, Paul tells us how in Philippians chapter 4. We began to look at this passage last week. Let me just remind you, in verse 1 of Philippians 4, Paul begins with the word, therefore. He says, in light of what I have just told you, as a practical consequence of what you have just learned, I want you to do something. And I want you to stand firm. To stand firm, as we saw last week, means to be stable, to remain steadfast, not to be moved in what you believe or how you live by circumstances. I told you that it's often used of a soldier who stays at his post regardless of what comes. Paul's desire for each of us is to have that kind of stability, to be spiritually stable. But how can we have that kind of stability? How can we as Christians sort of grow into a spiritually stable environment in which we can grow and be nurtured? Well, in verse 1, he, he tells us how. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, stand firm in this 
way. You see, the imperatives that follow verse 1, the string of imperatives there, outline the path to spiritual stability. In verses 2 through 9, Paul identifies for us six specific steps to spiritual stability. Do you want to be stable as a believer? These are the steps that will get you there. We looked at the first three last week. The first we found in verses 1 through 3, and it's simply this. Resolve to live in harmony with other Christians. If you want to be stable and spiritual as a believer, it starts with your relationship with others. It starts in committing yourself to living in harmony with your brothers and sisters in Christ. The second step we saw last week was in verse 4. Determine to face life's circumstances with joy. In verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. You've got to learn that joy is not tied to what's happening to you. You can rejoice regardless of the circumstances. And we talked last time about how we can do that. The third step we saw last week was make it your ambition to be known for a gentle spirit. Make it your ambition. Desire your reputation to be there is a person who is gracious, who is gentle. In verse 5, he says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now that brings us to verses 6 and 7, and what is the fourth step to spiritual stability? And it's the one I want us to examine today. Let me put it to you this way. This is the fourth step. Talk to God about everything. Talk to God about everything. Notice verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You probably have that memorized. It's one of the most succinct and profound statements about the role of prayer in the Christian life anywhere in the New Testament. Notice, if you will, that... Paul basically breaks down his instruction in verses 6 and 7 into three parts. First, you have a prohibition, be anxious for nothing. And then you have a prescription, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And then finally, in verse 7, you have a promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, let's take a look at each of those, see if we can unpack what Paul has included here for us. First of all, notice the prohibition. Be anxious for nothing. Literally, stop worrying. The Greek word for anxious is an interesting word. It can refer to a positive concern, that is, a kind of concern that isn't sinful. It's used that way a number of times in the New Testament and even in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. There are some things that you and I ought to be deeply concerned about. For example, look back at Psalm 38. Psalm 38, verse 18. David says, For I confess my iniquity, I am full of anxiety because of my sin. Listen, folks, you and I should worry in the positive sense. We should be deeply concerned. We should be filled with anxiety because of our sin until we deal with it, 
until we, as he does here in this verse, seek God's forgiveness, confess it unto the Lord. It's right that that would cause us to worry and be concerned. We also should be concerned for the welfare of other Christians. Back in Philippians chapter 2, you remember when he was talking about Timothy, in verse 20 he said, Timothy is someone who there's no one else like. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned. Same Greek word that's in chapter 4, verse 6. He's going to worry about you. He's going to be deeply concerned about you in the positive sense. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 makes the same point that you and I should be concerned about other Christians. 1 Corinthians 12, 25, he says, I don't want there to be any division in the body, but I want the members, that's each of us, to have the same care. There's our word for worry or anxiety. To have the same care for one another. You and I are to be deeply concerned about our sin. We're to be deeply concerned about other Christians. We're also to be deeply concerned about our spouse and our family. You see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, just a few pages back. Paul is commenting about the situation in Corinth and how it may be good for them because of the potential impending persecution for those who are single not to get married is because of that. And he makes this interesting comment in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 33. He says, the one who is married is concerned about, there's our same Greek word, is anxious about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Verse 34, the same thing is true of the wife. The end of the verse, the woman who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. It's right, men and women, for us to be concerned about our spouses, to exercise a deep level of concern about them. It's also right for us to be deeply concerned about our worship. Turn to Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, our word is used both negatively and positively in the same context. Or I should say the the concept is used. The word is used once, but you'll see what I mean. Luke chapter 10, the end of the chapter is the little vignette about Martha and Mary. You remember how the Lord comes to their house and Martha scurrying about. Verse 40 was says Martha was distracted with all her preparations. Verse 39, Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet in worship, listening to the Lord. Verse 41, the Lord says this. He says to Martha, 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 you are worried and bothered about so many things. There's the negative use. But then he says, but one thing is necessary. In other words, it's okay to worry about one thing. And that's the thing Mary has chosen, which is focusing your worship and adoration on me. To have a positive concern, to be deeply concerned in these ways. But interestingly, the same Greek word is also used in the New Testament to speak about a sinful concern, an anxiety, anxiousness. It refers to an anxious, harassing care, attempting to carry the burden of the future on yourself unreasonable anxiety, especially over things which you have no control. Lloyd-Jones translates this word anxious as harassing, wearying, wearing care. (laughs) Does that sound familiar? In Scripture, this word crosses from legitimate care to sinful worry when it is about the details of your own life and your own personal needs. What are the things that we worry about? What are the things that so deeply concern us? See if you find yourself in this list. Of those who were 
surveyed, 28% said they worry about money and financial issues. 17% about job and career. 14% marriage issues. 12% social relationships. 9% personal appearance and weight issues. 7.5% said family and children was sort of the constant preoccupation of their worry. 4% said it was health. What is it you worry about? You know, worry isn't one of those sins we take too seriously, is it? We kind of joke and tease about it. And at one level, that's understandable. But at another, it's not. Worry is a potentially damning sin. I don't know if you've ever thought about that or not. You remember the parable of the soils? Turn back to Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus describes the various condition of men's heart when the gospel is sown into that heart. And he describes one as soil that was thorny. And he explains it this way in Luke chapter 8, verse 14. He says, The seed which fell among thorns, that is, the gospel was sown into this heart, and this heart was a thorny heart. Here's what I mean, he says. These are the ones who have heard, they heard the gospel, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. Listen, there are those who receive the gospel, and because of a sin no more serious than the worries about this life and the pleasures of this life, the gospel is choked out and never comes to fruition. They never come to true, genuine faith in Jesus Christ. You know, this issue of worry is a very serious issue, and it's one that Jesus himself dealt with on a number of occasions in his ministry, but nowhere more clearly and directly than in Matthew chapter 6. You remember, during the Sermon on the Mount, he addresses this issue of worry. In Matthew 6, verse 24, he makes this overarching point, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You've got to choose. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't be a slave of God's and a slave of wealth at the same time. Therefore, he says, for this reason, stop worrying. He says, don't be worried, verse 25, about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink or for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow. They don't reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Literally, it says, who can add a cubit, 18 inches, to his lifespan? Can't be done. In fact, if you worry, you'll, you may end up subtracting several cubits. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil, they don't spin. And yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. If God so clothes the, field of the, the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith, Jesus says. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what we drink or what we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And we sit in 21st century America. Well, I'm off the hook for that message because I never worry about what I'm going to drink. I just turn on the tap water. I never worry about what I'm going to eat. i got a refrigerator and a freezer in the garage filled with food, a pantry. I don't worry about what I'm going to wear. I walk into my closet and i got a bunch of clothes I can choose from. Well, look at the next verse. You're not off the hook. Verse 34. 
So do not worry about tomorrow. Listen, folks. Every time we worry, it's about what? It's not about the past. It's about the future. It's about maybe something, what effect something that happened in the past will have on the future, but it's always about the future. It's about tomorrow. So nothing we worry about is legitimate, Christ says. That's what Paul is saying back in Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing. Let me ask you a simple question. Do you worry about anything? Do you worry about anything? Well, let me give you something else to worry about. If you worry about anything, Paul and Christ both say that every time you do, you're sinning against God. You say, why? I don't really understand that. I mean, it doesn't really hurt anyone but me. Why is worry a sin? Because when we worry, in effect, we are saying, God, listen, I understand that you've said that nothing happens outside of your control, and I understand that you've said you'll use everything in my life to my good and to your glory, but God, I have to say, I just don't think you can pull it off. That's really what worry says. If you struggle with worry, you're sitting there thinking, you know, this is fine for Paul to say, but in the real world, it can't be done. I mean, I've tried all kinds of methods and gimmicks, and I just can't stop worrying. Well, that same survey I quoted a few minutes ago, they also asked these people, how did they try to cope with their worry? What things did they do to try to keep them from worrying? They could choose more than one answer. Here are the answers. 62% said they distract themselves with other activities. 55% said they listen to music. 53% sleep. 52% discuss it with a friend. 46% watch television. Oh, now there's a solution. 40% eat. 40% also try to talk themselves into a calmer state of mind. 39% just ignore it. I don't know how you ignore worry. Worry, by definition, is not something you can ignore. 33% go to physical exercise. 27%, here's a good solution, fight with the people in my life was the answer. 26% use some form of drugs. 22% buy, or excuse me, shop or buy themselves a present. <laughs> and 20% use alcohol. Let me tell you, folks, not one of those solutions is a permanent one. But Paul tells us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how to keep from being anxious. Notice the prescription, second half of verse 6. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here's another one of those sweeping absolutes. In everything, in every detail and event of life, in anything that causes you to be anxious, respond this way. He tells us to respond with prayer. Now, there are various kinds of prayer, as you know in the Scripture. There's the prayer of praise, the prayer of adoration, the prayer of worship, the prayer of lament. But here, the focus is on petitions, asking God for what we need. Paul uses two synonyms in verse 6, prayer and supplication. Prayer is just the general word for prayer, usually refers to a petition, asking for something. And supplication is a word that stresses a sense of need, coming with a request because of an urgent, pressing need. Sometimes for yourself and sometimes for others. In this context, it's for yourself. Now, notice what our responsibility is. It's, it's caught up in the main verb of the sentence. The verb is literally, let it be made known to God, or let it be known to God. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't already know. We just read, Christ said, your Father knows what you need before you ever ask. So it isn't to inform God. Instead, this expression, let it be known to God, is, 
is kind of a colloquial expression in the original language. It's kind of a personal expression. We would say something like, just talk to God about it. Just tell God. Let it be known to God. You see, the cure for anxiety is simple. Talk to God. As R. Rainey said, the way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. What are you and I to make known to God? Paul says, make your requests known to God. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his current series, Six Steps to Spiritual Stability. Tom will bring you part four on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. And we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our email address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. That's 1-877-577-WORD. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. We thank you for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.